This is Tales from the Trunk, reading the stories that didn't make it. I'm Hilary B. Bisniaks. On today's show, we've got a good friend, A.J. Hackwith, who's the author of the forthcoming book, The Library of the Unwritten, which is coming out on October 1st from Ace Publishing. Amanda, thank you so much for coming on the show. Welcome. Oh, thank you for having me here. It's great to be here. Absolutely. You know, I, I always have a lot of fun having friends on the show, and it's also good fun because, you know, most of the friends you have in this day and age are online, and you never actually meet them, really, except maybe at cons or workshops. So, like, this is, I think, probably the first time we've met? I think, yeah, first time video to video, at least, yeah. So yeah. That's what's great about cons, is you have, like, your con family you only see a few times a year. <laughs> Absolutely. And... I mean, you are also part of my Slack family, mm-hmm. or I am part of your Slack family. Were you a, a VP20? Yep, I was. I went to Viable Paradise. Perfect. Uh, so, Amanda, you are going to be reading your story, A Gift of Claw and Hunt. Is that correct? Yes, I am. Awesome. And is there anything you want to tell us about it before you start reading? Just that this was a piece that I kind of, I wrote on a whim for a specific call, and it didn't quite make it into the call, and so... This is why it's in the trunk. (laughs) Perfect. All right. Well, ready when you are. All right. A gift of claw and hunt. I name her Clever Girl for the gifts she makes me. She is clever for her kind. Her soft, nubby hands are nimble as they fly through the buckles and screws of her gift. She's gotten good at securing her gifts on me, swift but gentle, as if her milk-soft claws could ever harm my skin. If I'm feeling playful, I snap my jaws at her hands as they flutter past my head. She does not squawk or grunt like the other pink ones, just tuts at me as she slides the buckle just right. Over my shoulder, where it won't catch on my sickle claws. Almost done, Giz, she tells me, like it's a secret. Sometimes the gift is a splayed foot of rubber and metal. Other times, a wheel that clunks and creaks like a wounded mouse. All of them are fitted for me to lengthen my lopsided stride. It only took a couple gifts before she gave up on the buckles. My body is not made to harness and hold. It is made for fluid razor things, leaping and twisting soft flesh like hers in my teeth. But I would not bite Clever Girl. At least, not too hard. (laughs) The newest gift is a curious sensation on my hindquarter. I hissed when I first saw it. A metal blade with an end like a mouth, open and sucking. I almost bit Clever Girl then when she nudged my leg joint towards that mouth of metal. But it did not bite. It slipped around my muscle like it was made for me. And when Clever Girl twisted a screw, it grew into a warm embrace. I twisted to kick it loose, but it held tight. No straps pulled. No wheels creaked. I knew enough about Clever Girl's gifts by now to know what she wanted, so I tested my weight on it. The tip of the crescent of metal pressed against the ground and curved with my weight, stabilizing, springing back up when I leap. It is flexible, like the sticks that cut the pink ones started to change me with. Clever Girl does not use sticks that cut. I'm nimble on my gift now. It is my improved hind claw, sharp and sickle-shaped like my grasping ones. Clever Girl has given me a gift of air. Hindclaw springs with me now, not creaking behind me or dragging like previous gifts. She is putting me through what she calls trials, though it's just having a run of my pen. Maybe they are trying for soft pink ones like her, but not for me. I could fly even without this hindclaw. 
Foliage wickers past my scales. I twist and leap and I taste a memory of dominion. She is pleased, though the other pink ones bark at her. I do not need to understand their fuzzy whines to, to know the sound of you are weak, I eat first. Clever girl should hiss at them, show them her teeth and take their necks. But she doesn't. I do not understand clever girl. The pink ones have fled over the last few nights, taking their sharp sticks that cut and their favored slabs of bright reflective ice. My clutch mates have gone too, but they do not have gifts from clever girl. Perhaps she finally bared her teeth at them and chased the others away. But I don't think so. She has made a nest in the corner of our big white cave, a distant whining sound, like a dying beast, sirens through the wall. She stares at her own tiny slate of ice late into the night. She smells of distress. I do not think she chased away the other pink ones. I think we were left. She argued with the pink ones before they left us here. She smells like salt water and grief, but I do not try to comfort clever girl. For comfort is for shell slick hatchlings. But I pace in my metal nest. It's other pink ones that come, clawing down the door. They are not like clever girl. They move like hunters. Traces of the chase comes in with them. They smell of sweat and oil and the sour civet of white-eyed hunger. They carry awkward bundles like their trophies. Though the lumps inside do not smell like meat, they smell of iron and plastic and greed. They are not very good hunters. <laughs> they growl and honk at Clever Girl, and she backs against the wall. Her nimble hands are clutched knuckle-white up against her chest. Even if she had real claws, she could not tear flesh that way. I hiss and strike at the bars, drawing the pink hunter's attention. The biggest one turns. A sliver of soft white flesh protrudes beneath his shirt. I could have his warm parts on my tongue before he could scream, whether the bar is not here. I twist, snapping my head between the bars. Pink belly makes that harsh sound, grackling you are weak sound, kicks my metal cage with his dull, clawless paw. I swipe, but clever girl barks and pink belly turns before I can sink into stupid soft skin. He growls. A crooked black stick is in his hand. It's not a stick that cuts, like the other pinks. It smells bitter, like fire. I do not like it. I rip little screeches from the metal bars in my nest and I force my head through. The pink ones made metal nests for my clutch mates, but I am smaller. Clever girl makes a weak sound. Her shoulders tighten up, but she's cornered against the cave wall. She should have struck before then, hissed and bit before Pink Belly got his bitter stick out. But she didn't, my clever girl. And now my clever girl smells of fear and it is wrong. My clever girl smells like prey. I want to shriek, but I let the metal do that for me as I twist and strain. I could slip between these bars. My scales would score, but I could do it, almost. The metal thunk, thunk of hind claw drums against the floor beneath my tail. Clever girl made my hind claw to flex and leap, but, but she did not make hind claw to slide and slither. I forced my shoulders through, scouring scale and bruising muscles underneath, but my hind claw catches metal on metal. I hiss my rage at it. But no pink hunters pay attention to me now. They're chuffing and growling at Clever Girl, and the hunt boils in my bones. None of it is right. Clever Girl should not smell like prey. The prey is buried in the soft, hairy flesh of pink hunters with sticks that smell like fire. They hold the stick like it is their own hindclaw, not a gift like mine, but something to hide their own prey fears behind. 
I am not made of prey fears. I love my hindclaw, but it is a tool, nothing more. I lunge and the mouth of hindclaw tugs, worrying at the joint like an overprotective clutch mother. I feel it slip, suctioning against scale, weakening, and I brace against the bars and I'm free. I birth from the metal nest like a clumsy hatchling. I leave hindclaw tangled in the bars behind me as I skid over cave floor that's slick as frost. Clever girl cries and I have my back leg underneath me again. When I leap, I cannot fly as high without hindclaw, but it's not that far, the flight from ground to rabbit fast pulse. The pink ones sway, belly first. They turn their bitter sticks, but it will not help them now, not when I smell their prey fears they hide. Prey fears, but no prey sense. Not clever like my clever girl. My sickle claws sink into soft flesh, slipping past flimsy skins and hen-soft hairs. They are prey and I am hunt. I taste their secrets, digging deep until I jerk back and their prey fears are streaming between my teeth. I am the hunt and the hunt sings through me. A small wet noise interrupts the hunt song. Clever girl hunches against the wall, so twisted, I worry she must be injured. But I only smell prey blood on the air, and my clever girl is not prey. I have been greedy then. I consider the pink, now red, one before me, and I try to <laughs> pluck a prey fear to her liking. I must choose wrong. Clever girl twitches like a carrion bird. She shakes her head, making the soothing sounds as she shuffles to her feet and untangles my hind claw from where it hangs off the metal nest. She extends it in her hand, metal mouth first, but I am in no mood for gifts and trials. I am scale and claw and hunt right now. Did she not see? See how I was never less than I was? I can fly and I can choose my gifts. I hiss, but it's the low warning hiss reserved for clutch mates. Okay, clever girl makes an agreeable sound. She lowers her arm. Tension draining out of her. She sits against the wall and is neither prey nor hunt now. Just clever girl. She was pink before, but now she is mine. Okay, she says again. You tell me what you need. Her flat, useless teeth click together around the soft sounds, and a breath leaves her. I eat quickly, knowing we should not relax, not when our own nest has been attacked once. Clever girl does not know this. She does not know how to survive in a hunt when predators look at your empty spaces and think weakness, not hunger. That's all right. I can teach her. It will be a gift. Whew. <laughs> it is it is warm today, listeners, but I have shivers. <laughs> I'm glad you liked it. <laughs> oh. I, I try not to be hyperbolic, but that was amazing. Thank you. Thank you very much. I was always fond of it. That's why I pulled it out for this podcast. Thank you so much for doing that. Um, I'm not going to name names, but I know the anthology that that was written for, and I've <laughs> read one of the other stories that didn't quite make it for that one that is also just a very good take. There's There's so much that has come out of our generation being raised on Jurassic Park. Exactly. <laughs> so you, you've you already introduced beautifully sort of why this got trunked, but I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about, because I, I feel like this is a common experience for people of 
here's an anthology call. It is very specific. And, you know, you can only get 12, 13, 14 stories, something like, in into an anthology, but hundreds of people are going to submit. So, like, you know, how do you deal with that? Yeah, it's tough because often these calls will go in waves, like everyone will be calling for a dinosaur story or a story with some other trend or trope. And so there will be a lot of stories floating around out there and you just feel like the market gets saturated for a while and so even if it's mm-hmm. a good story and i would i would still love to see something done with this story but uh i just feel felt like after that call it wasn't the right time for it so i put it away and it's tough that's why i try to i'm so busy i mean i'm more of a novel writer than a short story writer to be completely mm-hmm. honest and so i try to um instead of writing for an anthology call make sure that if i'm writing for a call it's an idea that really catches my attention and I can't not write it because then Mm -hmm. I know I can make it have legs even if this anthology doesn't call for it but if it's a super specific anthology and you're writing for it just to make it into that anthology sometimes your stories you know won't have life beyond that particular call uh, Mm -hmm. in my experience yeah that makes sense and it also I almost feel like that is sometimes the reason that it's hard to sell those stories if they don't make it into the anthology. Even if you wait, you know, a -hmm. couple of years and feel like your story still has legs and you still like it. It can sometimes be, uh, if if it wasn't written with that same sort of intentionality almost. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I feel like you need to have, it needs to have an organic life of its own past that particular anthology call. You can always tell, you can tell when something was written on assignment sometimes. Mm hmm. I know. I think one of the reasons I like this story, even though it was written for an anthology that it didn't make it in, was because I was really playing with voice in this one. Mm -hmm. And I find that short stories are an excellent mode to play with voice because it's just enough for you to get into a voice without it becoming labored or strained. I don't think I could write a whole book in that particular voice of the story, but it's a good short story voice, which lets you play with a lot of different language and prose things. Yeah, I really... the, The voice in that was really the first thing that struck me and I was admiring the the mental gymnastics that I'm sure you had to go through to get, you know, you can't, a, a dinosaur does not know the word gun mm-hmm. or the word knife. So like, how do you get knife and gun to be dinosaur? Yes. Yes. What would it look like to them? And it is, it's, it's just a fun, I had fun playing with the whole idea of, you know, like the predator that has become tool using only the tool in this case is, is a mobility device. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm so glad you got to share this now. I, I wish it had made it into that anthology, obviously, but then we wouldn't have it here. The other story that I'm thinking of that I want to draw parallels to with it is John Wiswell's Tank. Oh, John's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> where it is, there is representation in the story without the story centering around a human. Mm-hmm. I think that's something that comes up a lot, not necessarily not necessarily always not centering a human character, but using some sort of allegory to center representation. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, I can just say the call. I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> I know the editor they won't mind. It was it was for the the Robot Dinosaurs anthology that was amazing. The stories that made it in are fantastic and I'm yes. a big fan. But so often when you get to talking about like robots and any kind of disability, you're often it's fixing and improving a character and I wanted to 
with this dinosaur, especially uh, the turn in the story is that the dinosaur that she sees her her, her hind claw as a tool, not as mm-hmm. something she can't live without. So right. I wanted to make sure that the robotization of the dinosaur was not a replacement for what they could already do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that that is... We've talked about representation a lot on this podcast already, but I think that's something we haven't really touched on before, is, like, we, we've just sort of said, like, do representation right, but not what some of the pitfalls are where I think that you, you know, speaking as an able-bodied person where I'm not really in my lane, to me it felt that you you handled it well. Yeah, um, well, thank you. I just I think that it's one of the pitfalls that you have to be careful with, especially when you're doing things with uh, robotics or cyberpunk or things like that, is where we get mm-hmm. into the augmented humanity, because then you inevitably get a story where they lose that augmentation and they are helpless. Um, and I wanted to make sure that any any kind of mobility device or augmentation that I used in this story, I, it was not they were not left helpless without, without it. Mm-hmm. That is a trope that I've seen too much already and it's you know for me it's not necessarily just that it's harmful to people who are disabled and who rely on mobility devices to integrate into normal normal air quotes society but that it's just like you know you you see it and you're like oh i know what's gonna happen now mm-hmm. yeah and so i think one of the reasons probably this that story that was the twist of the story, and I think probably one of the reasons it didn't make it into the anthology. It needed it needed more development on that twist, and mm-hmm. I just I didn't I didn't have the time to develop it out that far. I guess, so looking back, I think that's probably a short story. It seems like there needs to be a turn in the story. I love short stories that have a distinct turn. Mm-hmm. So when the end line ties back to the beginning line, it's in a completely different context. So. Yeah. So sort of tying into that. The first short story of yours, I think I read, was in Skies of Wonder, Skies of Danger, the anthology we were both in. Oh, uh, yeah. In your story, Lips of Red, Lips of Black, which, listeners, you should... I'm not just saying this because I want you to buy our book, but I'm saying this because <laughs> that was one of the standout stories from that anthology to me. Hearing you read this story and thinking back to reading that story, I could very clearly like if you just put me in a room and read those two stories to me without telling me who they were I would know they were from the same person and knowing that Lips of Red Lips of Black was yours I could immediately see A Gift of Claw and Hunt as being that same voice thank you because you know like voice is a a challenging thing to define and develop even as an established writer so mm-hmm. yeah lips of red lips of black was a fun one because it was like everyone was, was we were there was a anthology call out for it and everyone was, was submitting it and i'm like i don't have time i was finishing up a, a <laughs> novel i was on contract for at the time and i'm like i only have time for a flash it has to be a flash and that 600 word story was what came out <laughs> well it's a good one Thank you. And it, yeah, it has that same, for listeners who have not yet read it, it has that same level of lyricism to it that you just heard with Gift of Clon Hunt in a, a very compressed space and also tying back to very specific anthology calls, Skies of Wonder, Skies of Danger, 
was an anthology, 13 Tales of Airships, Pirates, and Wizards. Yes, in some combination therein. Yes, but the key ended up being that it had to have all three. I know this because the first thing I wrote for that anthology only had two of the three, and my editor sent it back to me and said, I really like what you're doing here, but it still needs an airship, it turns out. (laughs) That's what editors are best at. Yeah. (laughs) And that is one of... So I ended up just turning around and writing an entirely different story, which, you know, the... There's a difference between anthology calls sometimes that this is one that I would that we were both invited to be in as opposed to open calls where mm-hmm. it's really, you know, may the best 13 stories uh, best according to the editors 13 stories win. Yeah, I I, I love I love anthology calls where you're invited because I I enjoy writing to a prompt, but mm-hmm. it's one of those things that if it's so a specific a prompt, you can't, you aren't going to feasibly have, it's not going to feasibly have a sales life of its own. It's, it's, yeah. it's a, it's an investment of time and, and resources. So, but I love getting invited to write in the anthology. So if anyone else has an anthology and needs a story. Yeah. Hit me up. Call us. <laughs> yeah. Which is totally not to say don't write to open anthology calls because editors are always looking it it's just a what i hear you saying is be mindful of what your time is yeah make sure that you're writing a story that i hate to say it but that you would have written anyway mm-hmm. that write for anthologies that give you great ideas not anthologies that are a place to put a credit yeah cuz i think it's if it's a great story, no matter where it gets its start, it will eventually find its audience. But, you know, some of those anthology calls are just really specific. Like with, with this one, it was the robot dinosaurs. And then Uncanny had a dinosaur call and I missed both of those. And I'm like, everyone's sick of dinosaurs. I'm just going to put this in the drawer for a while. <laughs> Come back to it later. There was, there was an anthology recently that was like underwater, the underwater ballroom society. Oh, I heard about that one. Yeah. Where it it was another extremely specific call where I was like, there must have been a group of friends who basically made up the the core of this anthology. I don't even know if there was an open submission call for it, but, you know, there must have just something been something in the water one day. You know, sometimes the best anthologies are ones where a bunch of writers are talking and suddenly start riffing off each other for around a similar concept. And those can be some of the most fun stories. I mean, that's where Skies of Wonder came from, was we were all riffing about, hey, we should do an anthology. What should we do it about? Airships. What else? Pirates. How about wizards? There you go. (laughs) Why not both? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and I, I really... I can't agree strongly enough with you, actually, about the point of, like, write the story you were going to write anyway. The story I ended up writing for Skies of Wonder was was playing with ideas that had been kicking around in my head for a decade or more, I think, and just finally, like, I had an outlet for it and produced a thing I was very happy with and that, you know, our editors were very happy with as well. 
Yeah, I mean, because like I've I've only had a handful of short stories published and and various anthologies and things like that. Um, It seems like the ones that I actually finish and successfully sell are ones that have more questions and answers in them for me. And so they, they, they bring me to the end that way. I also have Mm -hmm. a bad habit of writing short stories that then turn into books, but (laughs) that's, (laughs) that's any novelist problem. I think. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. So, um, as somebody who is, you know, a self-professed novelist who likes to write short stories but doesn't do it that often, having read the opening chapter of The Library of the Unwritten and then having read some of your short stories, I see your voice in both of them, but they are very different things. And I think that's something that I know uh, our first guest on this show, Sarah Gailey, was talking about as well, of just being able to luxuriate in language a bit more. Yeah, I think it's... Uh, in different ways. It's I, I, I think short stories, like I said before, is a place to really get to play around with voice and prose a lot more. Um, mm-hmm. For me, at least with the kind of novels I write, I like my prose to be enjoyable but fairly transparent i want people Mm -hmm. to be following along and enjoying the plot i'm you know i'm just i when i in the novel form i'm not as poetic as you know in short stories you can sustain that for a short bit and it's a a fun little slice of cake whereas as opposed to a whole wedding cake that a novel would be and so i think it's 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 a choice and it's also maybe just a little bit of evolution too because actually the book that came out um was written several years ago and and even you know it's the funny thing about being a writer is that when your book comes out you've already had a couple years of growth beyond it already and so Mm -hmm. you're you're always you know promoting two years ago you as opposed to (laughs) yes and two years ago you you have grown hopefully since then yes and not two years ago me was not bad i i lust to love this book and two good two years ago you is very good and there has, you know, time has passed since yes. then. And You're, that's a good thing. The best thing you've ever written is always the next book or story. That's just, that's just mm-hmm. the reality of it. <laughs> yeah, that, uh, that reminds me of somebody, I'm, I'm sure lots of people have said, your favorite tattoo is the one you just got. <laughs> or the one you're going to get. Or the one you're going to get, yes. yes. So one of the other things... Uh, circling back to the idea of, like, transhumanism that I just sort of stuck in my brain when you were talking about cyberpunk earlier was sort of how we have queer narratives, uh, how we do queer narratives well and how sometimes we fall down on queer narratives. Um, And I think that happens... There's a lot of people missing things uh, coming from, like, a a non-queer space around transhumanism. Mm. So I I would just wondered if you had any thoughts on that. I agree with you. I think I'm wary to have too many thoughts on that because it's not exactly my space to speak in, especially if we're talking about trans folk and, and trans identity. I think that cyberpunk in general and transhumanism in general... You know, it got a lot of its birth from the 80s Blade Runner Mm -hmm. version of of cyberpunk. And I think that the books that are coming out now, it's going to be so fascinating the next few years to follow because there's so many 
interesting takes and developments on it. But I think that's the interesting um, evolution that uh, the genre is going through in the last few years and continues to go through and will has even farther to go in the future. The way it's taking concepts that we feel like are well known and <laughs> going, what about queer people? What about people of color? What about... You know, mm-hmm. bringing in the people that the genre typically ignored or 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 didn't focus on, and bringing the focus in on them, and seeing how that can change and affect these tropes and and these uh, the sub genres within sci-fi and fantasy. I think it's really exciting to see, and I just love all of it. Yeah, absolutely. And it's um, coming back to anthologies. It is something that the anthology space has been really good for that we've had, you know, the whole destroy series of queer people destroy science fiction and fantasy and horror and disabled people destroy and women destroy, uh, that all of these are, you know, a big middle finger to the old guard (laughs) in the best possible way. I think it's the nature of sci-fi and fantasy to be a middle finger to the old guard um, year yeah. for year. Um, yeah, because I was I had an essay in uh, Disabled People Destroy, and I was hesitant to write it at first because I wanted to talk about anxiety disorder, and I was really glad that the editor Elsa put out the call that you you know you are enough for the anthology. Mm-hmm. You're disabled enough. You're because uh, I considered anxiety disorder, which. I have struggled with for a while, um, you know, as a neuroatypical disorder. Mm-hmm. And, but I've always hesitated to use the word disabled because, you know, I, I live with a husband who uses a wheelchair. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, nope, I'm going to stop there. Okay. <laughs> there's, there's thoughts, there's a whole rant in there, but I will stop there. Um, Fair enough. And I think that it's important to see the different perspectives of disability and neuroatypical perspectives on these, this genre. I, the essay I wrote about was talking about how it was comparing uh, VR tropes and the idea of heroism with mm-hmm. anxiety disorder and unreliable narrators and un- unreliable perceptions of reality. And I think that those calls are so important because the breadth of views you get and just digging into stuff that, that is often just, you know, it's just often a given, you know. Mm-hmm. The hero is always a, a athletic white male. <laughs> right. That just reminds me of that Tumblr post about the, um, like, the spacefaring, ass-kicking grandmas. Yes, yes. Uh, like, why, why are you sending all these young people out when, you know, it, it could be people who have actual experience in life? Yeah. Well, yeah. It, it, I was gonna say that's just, that's just so much the culture of the young, um, mm-hmm. and 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 culture. I mean, the idea of heroism is heroism is something that young people do. When old people do it, or when when people outside that mold do it, it's it's another word, but not heroism. Yeah, yeah. It's it is. It's always the exception has a word for it that is less mm-hmm. uh, less used, less known, less thought about. So, having mentioned the name of your book several times, uh, The Library of the Unwritten coming out on October 1st from Ace, mm-hmm. uh, 
can you tell us a bit more about this book and sort of, you know, we want to know what it's about, but also it's always interesting to hear like the process behind it, the story behind it. So if you can tell us a little bit of that. Yeah, you know, it's funny because this is one of those ideas that started out as a short story that <laughs> evolved now into a trilogy that'll be coming out. Um, <laughs> the book is The Library of the Unwritten. It is based on the library of all the books that were never written, all the stories that were dreamed up but never told. Um, and this library exists in hell. <laughs> <laughs> as unfinished, all unfinished, as all unfinished projects do. Um mm-hmm. And it centers on the denizens of this library, specifically the librarian who is in charge of making sure the book, the characters and stories stay in their books and keeping these stories in in as best condition as possible um, on the off chance they'll be written, Um, Mm -hmm. which is all well and good until one day a book escapes. Oh, no. And... And Claire, the librarian named Claire, just has a bad day after that. There's there's all sorts of other things. There's a then there there's the devil's Bible, and there's heaven and hell, and it's a cross a cross realm romp and secrets and stories and angst and all sorts of good stuff. So <laughs> I'm, I'm so excited for this book. Uh, I think I pre-ordered it the moment that you told us that pre-order links were up. <laughs> Um, and that is why you're my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> it uh, much like last month's guest Tyler Hayes' new book, The Imaginary Corpse. It scratches, or the description of it anyway, scratches a very particular Jasper Ford shaped itch for me. I get that, and it's funny because. I will admit, I haven't read Jasper Ford because everyone started comparing it so quickly to Jasper Ford. I'm like, well, now I can't read Jasper Ford or, you know, there's that worry mm-hmm. about, pe- you know, being, being... Once you wrap the trilogy, yes. once book three is out, then you can read Jasper Ford. Yes. I've been like, my editor has like been giving me like the okay whether I can read some of these similar series or not. And then I haven't, haven't read that one yet. But that, it's just knowing the genius of Jasper Ford is a huge compliment. Um, and... It started as a short story, mm-hmm. and the short story I had just titled Hell's Librarian, because that was the mm-hmm. picture I had in my head when I started. It was just a Drabble. I, actually, I still have the original Drabble up on my uh, on my website um, as one of the free short stories, and it was just this picture of a library in hell, and what would that be, and why would it be there? Because, you know, I, I'm the first one to admit that a magical library is not a mm-hmm. new, new concept in any way. It, right. it, as long as humans have been writing books or ha- had writing in general, they've had visions of what a magical collection of everything in the world would be like. Mm-hmm. So the take I wanted to put on it was, I had to do a lot with lost possibility and regret, which, which sounds mm-hmm. like a downer. I promise the book's not right. a downer. But... um. The, the idea of what happens with those stories, what happens with the people who were almost storytellers but weren't? What mm-hmm. happened? Because, like, for a long time, I thought that was going to be me. I worked in tech for, for years. I went to grad school, and then I worked in tech. And um, I'd always loved writing, and I'd actually done NaNoWriMo a few times in college. But I was convinced it was not something I could ever make a career at. Mm-hmm. But I knew, I knew I still had those stories those stories that I had been thinking about for years and carrying with me, I knew they were still in there. 
Like they right. were separate entities all their own. And so the idea of a library where they exist before and after um, was just comforting to me, kind of, which is, mm-hmm. of course, why I put it in hell, I guess. Right. But, <laughs> but, Nothing uh, more uplifting. Yeah, so I I kind of mixed in my, my feelings about um, the struggle to write and get published and the power of stories and the innate... I have a lot of feelings about stories as part of ourselves, not in mm-hmm. some mystical, you know, the muse came to me way, though in my book, muses literally do come to you. Um, yeah. <laughs> but as stories being splinters and, and shards of ourselves, um, and that develops over the course of the trilogy too. Which mm-hmm. I'm just finishing up revisions for book two. So Fantastic. It, it's that... Uh... It's that, you know, long, long tale of being an author, being a novelist. (laughs) (laughs) It is. It's interesting. I'm glad I'm getting to finish book two before book one comes out. That way, you know, I'm not trying to write the sequel with Mm -hmm. whatever good or bad reactions um, the book gets. So Yeah. Well, you did at the time of this recording, which listeners is several months before release, uh, you did just get a starred review from the Library Journal. I did. It was very exciting. My first starred review. So absolutely, and from librarians about a book about librarians, no less. So I know. can you do better? I know. I was so nervous. Mm-hmm. If the librarians hadn't liked my book, I mean, they are they are a powerful group. You know, I they are. I you don't want to mess with librarians. They know where all the bodies are hidden. So, yeah. <laughs> so I, I adore librarians, and I would have been very sad if they had, if if Library Journal had had uh, not cared for my book. But luckily, it got a starred review, and that made me so incredibly happy. Absolutely. Well, if if they had not cared for your book, what's the Library Journal? Who's heard of that? <laughs> Sounds fake. Exactly. That's how reviews work, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> no, the Library Journal is a wonderful institution, and I love librarians to death. So, yes, Library Then Written is kind of my, you know, because like you know, library saved me. I, mm-hmm. I, had you know, especially during middle school when I had had a really tough time growing up as a little 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 queer girl in the middle of Columbus, Nebraska. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah, farm fields and the Walmart. That's about it. Um, my, the public library was just a block away from the middle school. And so often I would go to the library after school and just hide with, mm-hmm. with a book and a book, kind of both. Um, and those in the books at the, and the, having that space at the library, just, you know, I, I, I do not kid that fiction saved my life. And so, yeah, libraries, we do stand. Yes. <laughs> Best invention man ever had. Yep. We can... We'll, I crack on Ben Franklin all the time, but public libraries, man. He did good there. Pretty darn good idea. Yeah. So, one of the... One of the themes in this show is time travel, and since you just mentioned little young Amanda going and hiding in books, uh, if you could travel back and... You know, not necessarily to young Amanda hiding in the library, but to baby writer Amanda. Is Are there things that you've learned in the course of writing Library of the Unwritten, in the course of your career so far, that you wish you'd known starting out? 
I mean, yes, but I'm not sure I would tell her. <laughs> because <laughs> the funny thing about my career, I, I guess it's it's I still feel like it's incredibly in its infancy, but um, mm-hmm. so much of that progress was made that when I got frustrated and impatient with you know the, the process of publishing and writing and tried something entirely new i i, mm-hmm. I, I joke that spite is a great motivator for books um absolutely and, <laughs> and you know i i think if i gave my former self too much advice they would not have gotten as fired up and you know taken the risks written the ridiculous ideas that they thought they that that that, that I did. Um, and so I think that sometimes the not knowing mm-hmm. is an important part of the progress. And I think if I knew more about the way publishing and writing works and a way that, that building a career works, I wouldn't have written necessarily the exact books I'd wrote. And I'm pretty happy with that. So I think that sometimes, you know, the, the ignorance and, Frustration is is good because the spite fuels the creative power, you know? Absolutely. Spite is the real muse. Write your spite book. It'll go farther than you think. Trust me. (laughs) I I feel like there are a lot of books that have been written out of spite. Uh, one One of my friends, I'm pretty sure, told me that they wrote their debut because their agent said... Hey, bet you can't. <laughs> that is a smart agent. It strikes me as a, a, a being handled <laughs> situation. Yeah. But yeah, like, because like I was querying Library of the Unwritten a couple years ago, and I was mm-hmm. it was taking a while, and I have never been known for my patience, <laughs> and so I got frustrated. Like, this book's never going to be published. I'm going to write the most fun wild crazy idea for a romance i ever had and <laughs> and uh, i wrote two sci-fi romances as ada harper i should say that first mm-hmm. of all um yes. and those ideas turned into a pitch i sent karina press which turned into a conspiracy uh, whispers which is the first mm-hmm. book and a treason a truce which is the second book which basically was i got really mad at a at a common fanfic trope and i decided to fix it by mm-hmm. <laughs> writing two ridiculously long sci-fi romances um instead of a fix it fic you fixed a I, fix I, it I, exactly I, I always do this i like i find things that i hate and that's mm-hmm. what inspires me to write something i like yes you know other people are like oh i love this book so i wrote this beautiful book as an homage to this book i'm like no this thing sucked and i wanted to like play with it and poke it and twist it and <laughs> do it my way. I hate this thing and I am going to spend so much time telling yeah. you how much I hate it by making I, it better. I shouldn't say I hate it. Like so yeah. many fanfic tropes that even ones I, I have twisted and poked at and stuff like it's, it's, it's fanfic is wonderful. It's always got a soft place in my heart. <laughs> I want to interrogate tropes. That's it. These are tropes I want to interrogate. I don't hate them. I just want to interrogate and poke them with sharp sticks. Yes. And and I think that you can have a certain amount of... that. I, I think that there, to a certain extent, malice and interrogation can go hand in hand as well. That there's... I think a lot has good has come out of 
having malice towards something and wanting to interrogate it by writing a book. And, you know, I think a little bit of annoyance is good for revision, honestly. Mm -hmm. (laughs) If you're just a little bit ticked off at your book... That's a great place yeah, to be, be revising. Yeah, that's, that's, that's how you kill your darlings. Yeah, that's how you actually get the work done. Exactly. Then you're not you're not cherishing everything as as your as your darling, and you're willing to poke and prod and cut bits out. And yeah, uh, what's the saying? Write with star eyes emoji. Edit with devil horns emoji. <laughs> exactly. Just never go full full poop emoji. Poop emoji is a sad yeah. place to be. No, you, you're not going to be happy with it. No, no one no one is poop emoji. I do want to go back to what you said about maybe not wanting to give yourself that advice, because I think that there is something really valuable in recognizing that there are not shortcuts. Mm-hmm. And, like, one of, one of the things that happens in, like, one of the big tropes in time travel fiction is, like, if I tell them, it'll all be different. You know, everything has has ripples that way. It is, because, like, you know, I've made some steps in my early career that were not, perhaps, they were not the most financially profitable. They were not, the, perhaps, the most business-savvy steps. Mm-hmm. But I also can still see how, what I learned from those steps and what how that really, I learned that lesson early on. I'm glad I learned some of those costly lessons early on so I don't have to learn them later. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I know, and, and I think so much of having a successful writing career is, is knowing what success looks like to you mm-hmm. and not going for the other people's measures of a success. Cause you know, right. their success of, you know, financial success, their success of winning awards and those necessarily aren't always the same path. Sometimes mm-hmm. they are. But and they're also not a success that you can control. No, no, either neither one are in your control much at all. Yeah, but uh, it's 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 and it's really easy to get caught up in what other people are gauging a success and and lose track of what you want to get from writing these stories. Maybe mm-hmm. you just you maybe your idea of success is fan art and. A Tumblr hashtag, you know? Uh, yep. And if that's your measure of success, you shouldn't be measuring yourself on by how many Nebula nominations you have or, or whatever. Um, so, right. and, and vice versa. If, 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 if the, the literary acknowledgement of, of, of awards and different, different people's recognition is important to you, then, you know, y- your path is going to be different depending on how you define success. And I think that's really important to to check in on once in a while to make sure that you're still building a career that that is successful for you, not what someone else wants. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I should mention that the Library of the Unwritten has an excerpt up right now that you can read on tour.com. Yep. Um, so if you want to get a taste of the first chapter two, I believe, of the book, you can read it there. And also, if you know, it's up, it's up for pre-order wherever fine books are sold. Yes, and uh, we will have links to all of that in the show notes, listeners, so you can uh, find it right there. I really do recommend going and reading that excerpt. Uh, it's really fun for me to see my friends' names up in places where they're like, "Read, get a preview of this novel right now before it comes out. And it's even cooler to see Tor.com doing that 
for a book that's not even being published by any branch of Tor, and there are lots of branches of Tor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's been fantastic. Um, Tor.com does amazing things um, for the genre in general, I think. Yes. So it's been fantastic. Once again, we do stand. <laughs> Well, uh, Amanda, it's been so awesome to have you on. And where can listeners find you elsewhere on the internet? Uh, sure. I am at ajhackwith.com is my website. And you can it's really easy to find me on Twitter and Instagram. I am at ajhackwith. So all the Perfect. places. All the places. Yes. All the places. Nail down your name. As soon as you know how you want to be known, that's pretty that much. Down. That's why I went with AJ Hackwith over Amanda Hackwith because I'm like, but I already got the tags for the other one, you know, like it's, mm-hmm. it's shorter. <laughs> and if listeners want to find your smoochin' books, smoochin' books, yes. If you would like some kiss, kiss, punch, punch in your life, um, I have written two sci-fi romances or romantic sci-fis under the name Ada Harper as my pen name. And the first book is called A Conspiracy of Whispers. And that's available in digital ebook form um, pretty much anywhere ebook is sold. Fantastic. Amanda, again, so happy to have you on the show. Uh, speaking of conspiracies... Dear listeners, next month we will be having the author of A Conspiracy of Truths, Alexandra Rowland, on the show. <laughs> Alex is You like great. how I worked that in? We're, t- we're title twins. We were joke- laughing about that when our books were coming out. So. <laughs> yeah, I was... I, I am literally recording that episode in one hour from now. Uh, so... It works out well for me because I can just be like, yes. eh, conspiracy day. <laughs> it is. Alex is fantastic. Alex is fantastic. So, yeah, Amanda, thank you so much for coming on the show. Listeners, so thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's been great to be here. Tales from the Trunk is mixed and produced in beautiful Oakland, California. You can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash trunkcast. Patrons of the show get access to show outtakes and other content that can't be found anywhere else. You can find the show on Twitter at TrunkCast, and I tweet at HBBisniacs. If you like the show, consider taking a moment to rate and review us on your preferred podcast platform. And remember, don't self-reject. <laughs>